Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling, and Nick Watson is still stuck in a, the wonderful Australia. So I brought back my good friend Evelyn Eve to guest host with me this Paper Scraps. How are you doing, Evelyn? I'm great. How are you? Just uh, worried about the world ending and uh, everything burning around me. But besides all that, valid concerns. Exactly. And on that positive note, let's begin this episode. And on this one's uh, Paper Scraps, we will be answering your TV running questions as always, this time about second careers, writer's assistant work, and uh, preparing for staffing, plus some TV writing news about the award season, and also big data. So let's get started. Although actually, before we do, we have a reminder that this week, this Friday, January 31st at 7.30pm, we will have our first Paper Team Mixer of 2020. So if you're in town in LA, we will be doing that at the Village Idiot on Melrose. Are you familiar with Village Idiot? I am. I've been there before. Is it a good spot for our mixer? I think it is. So uh, you can uh, join us at Village Idiot on Melrose at 7.30 on Friday the 31st for second mixer of all time, I believe, but first mixer of 2020. We will see you there. And now let's get to your TV running questions. All right, let's get into your TV running question. And the first one we received from Sherry Albert, who was asking advice on getting into TV writing as a second career. Sherry says, hi, I've been a professional actor since I was a kid and thought that would be my career for my entire life. I've been in a film that won Sundance in the 90s, made my living from TV guest spots and commercials, but it wasn't enough for me as I wanted to create the stories being told. Plus, as I got older, I became less desirable in the business in front of the camera. I started writing in 2006 for online and in-print publications, and I am now a professional treatment writer, mostly for commercials, but also for some TV. This is a great gig, but I want to become a professional TV writer. I've written a bunch of specs and studied script writing. So Sherry's question is, at a youthful and exuberant 48, is it possible to still break in as a young writer? I do know a lot of talented, powerful people in the industry, but besides words of keep writing, encouragement, none have been willing to pass my scripts to their reps. I had a lit manager for a short while, but he had a nervous breakdown and is now farming Christmas trees in Oregon. I guess I'm looking for words of encouragement from you guys, if they're honest, that it's not too late for me to get staffed. And if not, how do I, besides fellowships and contests, break in? Do I tell people my real age? My acting agents would tell you I play 10 years younger. I can say I don't have uh, much experience with uh, farming Christmas trees in Oregon. <laughs> I don't know if you have. I hope he's happy farming Christmas trees. That sounds <laughs> delightful. That does sound a little bit delightful. Maybe we should all uh, <laughs> leave the business just to do that. <laughs> now, in terms of breaking it older, I mean, obviously, we don't have experiences with that personally. But I will recommend the episode that we did with my good friend, Gia Holtham, who was on the Cloak and Dagger. That was all about breaking into TV as a, a TV writer later in life. That was PT92. With that said, I personally feel like there's no real age gap in terms of breaking in. In fact, I feel like the more experiences you bring to the table, the more useful you are as a TV writer. Now, I may be a bit awkward if, let's say, you're older than the showrunner or like an EP, but in terms of actively being valuable in a room as a staff writer, honestly, the more experiences you have, the more interesting your stories and the more uh, pitching you'll be able to do in the room. I don't know if you agree on that level. No, I totally agree. Life experience and like just generally the experiences that you've had is going to be tremendously beneficial. Those are the experiences that 20-some-year-olds who've just been like assistants 
for the most part, they probably don't have the experience that you have. Absolutely. And also, I feel like you shouldn't necessarily discount the fellowships and the contests. Well, at least the fellowships, just because fellowships are there in part to seek out people with diverse experiences, including diverse experiences in our lives. And so mm-hmm. I feel like that's definitely a place to seek out and highlight that in uh, the bio. I mean, you did that yourself, uh, Adeline. So if you have any thoughts on that. I didn't come up the traditional path of being an assistant, like a Hollywood assistant first before I got staffed. I had like a whole other, I don't know if I would call it a career, but I I had a day job, which was unrelated to the industry. That's how I paid my bills and how I got my work visa and green card and all that. So it's definitely possible. I think the fellowships are a great way to do that. I know that Warner Brothers, for one, has taken, you know, people of all ages who are now like established writers. Jay Farber is one of them. He's on Twitter. I think he's now writing for Supergirl. What's your uh, take on meeting people and networking in that capacity? Oh, yes. So I think Sherry mentioned like having upper level contacts maybe in the industry, which I think is like super helpful. I think it's always good to foster those relationships without necessarily expecting anything in return because there are like a variety of reasons why they might not want to pass along your script. Maybe they're just like not in a position to right now. Maybe their reps only rep high profile or like really established writers at this point. Maybe if they're showrunners, they're not staffing for their shows right now. There's like a variety of reasons. So I wouldn't necessarily take that personally. But I think it's just really helpful to have any contacts at all and to try to use those contacts to kind of build your network because you just never know where a potential job might come from. Yeah, definitely agree. Just the fact that you're already working on your writing is already a lot of the work and, yeah. and getting to a place where you feel comfortable sharing the material with those powerful executives or showrunners or EPs or whoever you have in your corner who can back you up and say, okay, now I've read your sample, you're ready to be staffed or, or at least uh, I can uh, maybe pass that along to a friend of mine who may be more interested in, in reading you and sort of shaping Kind of like what I talked about in the last Paper Scraps episode, actually, just the idea of like shaping your narrative and taking the experiences that you have to not as a, something that's negative, but in fact, just the opposite. It's something that's bringing a lot more to the table than just like you said, the 20 year old uh, guy fresh from USC, what have you. Yeah. You have like so much to bring to the table that it's important to understand all the things you bring to the table and then sell yourself in that capacity when you're talking to those people and like, hey, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, and this is reflected in my work. Here's my pilot, or if you want to read it, it's the most compelling pilot you've ever read for whatever reason. It's actually a good uh, piece of material. Hopefully it is. And then that can help you along and they can uh, pass it on and, and so forth. And you don't need to tell people your age. I don't think I, I have a hard time coming up with a time when I would ever uh, talk to people about my age. Yeah, me too. Except on OkCupid, but that's a different story. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on to our next question by Miles Prussia, who is asking about, uh, in part, generating more material. And he says, hi, I listen to your podcast all the time. As I got hip to it through the Screenwriters Rent Room, side note, shout out to Hilliard. Uh, I'm a writer with representation, but I really need to start writing more scripts this year. I want to get staffed. I write black thrillers and comedies. I feel like my manager can't really do a lot for me because I haven't had a lot of new material, just one new half-hour pilot this year and a feature. Do you have any advice? I think that's like a good amount of new material to be generating per year. 
don't you think, Alex? Yeah, I mean, I feel like if you are actually generating one new pilot and a feature a year, I think that's actually pretty decent. Yeah. Uh, my question is more in terms of, is that the only kind of material that Miles has in their portfolio? And uh, especially, is it relevant to what the managers uh, can do? Now, specifically, I am reading the description here and it says black thrillers and comedies. I feel like those two are not quite the same. Right. Um, and so this is something that we've talked about before in the podcast, just the idea of, especially when you're first starting out, you need to define your niche on some level because you need to simplify as best as you can the way someone else can understand who you are and what you write. In the same way that the manager that you have is probably going to be selling you to, let's say, Bad Robot or Monkey Ball as uh, someone who writes really amazing black thrillers. And that's a great way of selling. Maybe that feature that you have is this awesome thriller that's really compelling. But at the same time, that's really hard to sell yourself as a, as a black thriller writer if Similarly, you also have uh, this new half-hour pilot that's, I don't know, like some modern family take. Mm. Um, I feel like that's where perhaps the risk I'm reading here is, just the idea that maybe the manager is having a hard time defining who you are as a writer because you're creating probably really good material, but in terms of the content of it, it's sort of uh, in contradiction with one another. I think another possibility is if the material is like too niche, which might not necessarily be a bad thing. It might be a really great mm. sample but there might not be as many shows that your reps can submit you to with that sample. That's also another possibility. So I think it's like, a, it's a good conversation to have with your reps in right. terms of like, what samples do you have? What are you excited about writing next? And what samples will help you get staffed? I completely agree. Just the fact that communication is important cannot be overstated, especially when it comes to your reps. A lot of people I feel are afraid of having conversations even unpleasant conversations with their reps because they'd rather keep their frustration to themselves. Even though if, if you're at a place where you feel frustrated with your manager, then there's no shame or problem with sitting them down. I've done that last year, just sitting them down and explaining, hey, I feel a bit frustrated because I've been generating material. I've been giving you the samples. I feel like I've maybe I've even given you directions. I've told you, okay, I feel like this is perhaps the places where I want to go to. Why is this material not being received well what do you feel i should be doing to help you do your job in that capacity yeah i think it's like an ongoing conversation have you had uh, much experiences with your reps having those conversations what have they been like i think i have gotten a lot better in terms of communicating as you said when you're first repped or when you're first working with reps it can be very daunting especially if you're not working in the industry you're very grateful that anyone wants to work with you at all but start to think about, or you should start thinking about it like it's a business because it is. It's ultimately like your brand, your company, and your career. And, you know, you want to have a strong hand in like guiding that and in communicating to your team like what you want and getting from them their input and their advice on like how you can get there. And are your samples cohesive in the sense of they're all kind of the same one hour shows or are there, do you have like half hours, do you have a mix of tone? What um, does your portfolio look my like? My samples are all hour long. And I think so Katie Keene is a show that probably is like vastly different from the samples that I have just tonally. The pilot that got me staffed on Katie Keene was a fashion pilot. It's definitely a lot darker in tone and very different from the hopeful optimism of the show but ultimately like it served me well because it got me meetings on a lot of genre shows as well at warner brothers i try to 
tackle like worlds and stories that are interesting to me, but I feel like my take on it is like a very specific point of view. I don't think I like explained that very I mean, well, I, I actually do understand exactly where you're coming from because I feel like I'm in the same boat in the sense of most of my pilots, even though they may not be totally similar, they still attack sort of either a genre or format or a place in the world that's very unique. And it's sort of my spin on, okay, this is my take on a legal trauma, let's mm -hmm. say, or this is my take on a peer piece or whatever it is. Yeah. And then to go back to your example, I feel like even though your fashion pilot wasn't maybe not a CW show, right. it was still very relevant to not just the content of Katie Keene in of itself, but also just structurally speaking, you were writing a one hour, you weren't writing yeah. sort of multicam family comedy, you a half hour, right? You were writing a one hour and tone in that capacity can be, I feel like adjusted and not necessarily in the same way that if you're writing in different formats, mm -hmm. it could be just as easily adjusted. And I feel like that's where, just to go back to Miles's question initially, that's what I meant to underscore in the context of writing both uh, thrillers and comedies. I don't think those two things are necessarily in the long run contradictory, but when you're first starting out and you're first being introduced to the people around this town and different executives, they need to grasp in a very simple way, not because they're simple people, but just because it's just easier to understand who you are as a person, what is your story? And maybe you write thriller comedies. Maybe that's your thing. Maybe both the half hour pilot and the feature are thriller comedies. But I feel like if one is a half hour multicam and the other is sort of like a dark, gritty, black thriller feature, I feel like those two things are not quite complementary. And our next question comes from Tori Miller. Tori says, this may be a rudimentary question, but how might one land a writer's assistant gig? I don't really see them listed on hiring sites or studio careers pages often. Is it one of those things that is usually based on your network connections? Almost assuredly so. I would say like 90% of it is yeah. uh, network connections. Personally, all the gigs I've had were through connections and also slightly linked to working my way up. Probably, I would say 90% of it is the connection as opposed to being bumped up just because it's really rare to find a room that is going to foster people and has the opportunity for you to move up on a regular basis. I think in the Riverdale, Sabrina, Katie Keene universe, they're very conscious of fostering the assistance they have there, it's like a very positive environment, I think, for them where they are given the opportunity to move up. One of our staff writers on Katie Keene was writer's assistant on Riverdale before that. So I think it really depends on the environment, as you mentioned. I'm sure you have a lot more insight on this since you've gone through the assistant path. Yourself. Yeah, I mean, my take on just writer's assistant as a job, generally speaking, is one of the biggest mistakes that newer people make is thinking writer's assistant is an entry-level job. It's like the first job you get. Writer's assistant is probably the most senior, like in the writer's room, I would say yeah. like writer's assistant and script coordinators are gonna be the most senior experienced people in the room on the support staff. And that's because to be a writer's assistant, it's sort of like you're the keeper of the Bible, you're the keeper of the room, you're the person who's gonna be taking notes day in, day out. You're gonna be the resource that people are gonna turn to when they ask, oh, what did we talk about last week on Tuesday? What was that thing with uh, Jack? Uh, what was their story? And you're gonna be the person who's gonna be on the ball saying, oh, okay, well, on Tuesday, we talked about this, this, and that. Yeah. And that's not something that you can do right out the gate because a lot of the writer's assistant gigs that people get, they often get it because they were PAs before or writer's PA on that show. And then they saw how things were made. Maybe they were showrunner's assistants before maybe that. Maybe they well. were showrunner's assistants. So maybe the writer's assistant was sick one day. So one day a week they took notes. And so now they sort of understand how it goes. 
there's ways of sort of shepherding that future opportunity that doesn't exist if you're just trying to get the writer's assistant gig outright. Now, in terms of finding those gigs, again, I, I do feel like we said it is all based on relationship because those things are not advertised at all. And in fact, not only are they not advertised, but the turnaround to getting a writer's assistant gig is a matter of days. The way I got my past writer's assistant gig was I interviewed on a Friday and on Monday was when the job started. So yeah. that was a weekend turnaround for a gig. That sounds about right. Especially like for network shows where, you know, they get picked up and then it's like the room starts. I mean, it's exactly what you described. Exactly. And the other thing, like you said, the in terms of the showrunners assistant stuff, it, the other opportunity that you have is if you work on pilot scripts or rather pilots, there's the opportunity to then transition as the writer's assistant or SA when the pilot gets picked up as a show. It's very common actually for a showrunner's assistant to be a showrunner's assistant on the pilot. Maybe they're going to do double duty. They're going to also be the script coordinator for the pilot. And then once the show gets picked, they're going to be bumped into the right assistant position. I think it's also all the more reason to befriend, you know, assistants at like various levels, like whether they're PAs or writer's assistants, because if they like move up the ranks and there's like an opening on their show, they could potentially recommend you if you've had experience. Absolutely. Experience. I mean, that's the thing is you got to build up those experiences yeah. and you got to build up those connections. It's not one or the other. It's sort of like yeah. this complete picture that you got to paint. Yeah. And on to our next question by Oscar Engstrom, who is asking about spec ideas. And he says, hi, Alex, my name is Oscar and I live in Sweden. I have a bachelor in design and communications, but I've realized that it is not what I want to do with my life. I would say my biggest problem is that I cannot seem to come up with any good specs. And if I do come up with something somewhat original, I always end up hating the idea before even writing it. So I don't get any work done at all. I think the reason I do this is because I want it to be absolutely original and perfect since a good script is the one and only chance for me to get invited into the TV business. Do you have any tips for me? Thanks in advance, Oscar Sweden. I think that's a really good question. It's something that a lot of people probably relate to. It goes back to the whole like imposter syndrome thing. And I think it's also really common to be critical of your ideas and to essentially like hate your ideas when you're just starting out because they're probably not very good. If you've just started writing, they're probably like derivative of a lot of your favorite movies and things like that. But I think it's important to like think about like what you're passionate about and what you're obsessed with, just like topics, characters, real life events that you can't stop thinking about. That's typically how I like to approach what I want to write about. Because those are the things that you'll continue to be passionate about as you write. Because you're always going to face obstacles and things as you write that story, as you flesh out the ideas. And, you know, there are always going to be moments where you feel like this is dumb. Maybe this idea isn't going to work, but you kind of have to have that anchor, the thing that keeps you coming back. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you're saying. I mean, just the fact that getting excited about an idea is very important to me. And that is because in part, the pilot that you're going to be writing is not about the idea. It's about the execution of that idea. When you're in the room... The reason why you're in the room is not just to like execute the script. It's also to give many, many ideas. So you want to be fast on the ball in that capacity. Now, I will say like Evelyn, you just said nothing is original. I don't I don't think I've ever heard an original idea in my entire life. In fact, 
as soon as someone pitches a show or a pilot they're writing, in my mind, I'm like, oh, this kind of reminds me of this show. Yeah. Have you seen this show? Yeah. And it's not a detriment to the person's idea or the person's pilot. It's more so, hey, like here's more inspiration for you to see what not to do or to do, maybe to lean into or lean back from. And just the, the fact that you are critical of your ideas isn't something that's negative necessarily. I mean, like you said, again, the imposter syndrome is something we all struggle with. It's something that we all deal with. So I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's more to do with, okay, I understand that right now I may not be super happy with the idea, but maybe I'm still excited about what I'm trying to say here and I can save it in my mind by executing it in a specific way. Maybe I want to take this idea and I want to do like a David Lynchy thriller pilot thing. And then this is going to push you forward into writing that script in a way that maybe uh, an hour ago you weren't super excited about, but now you sort of know, oh, this is actually a fresh take on something that I've not seen before. Yeah. And I think like point of view is something that writers don't necessarily think about as much as they should when you're just starting out. Because point of view is really what makes your idea feel original. Point of view and like voice on the page is like what ultimately sets your script apart from everyone else's, even if the story is this meets that. Because that's ultimately like how if you meet with execs, if execs read your pilot or your feature or whatever, or even if reps read your sample, that's how they're going to pitch it. They're going to say it's like, you know whatever, like succession meets parasite. They're two very similar things. Succession meets parasite are two very similar things. But yeah, parasite isn't a wholly original idea, but it's like, it feels very original and different because it's a different point of view. Absolutely. And uh, on that note, I'll definitely recommend PT88, which uh, was an episode we did entirely on the idea of perspective and points of views in TV writing. Like Evelyn said, the thing that you bring to the table that nobody else brings is your perspective, is your thoughts, your experiences. When we say write what you know, we don't mean like write what you know. Oh, I know how to make a bread. So I, I will only write shows about making bread. It's more about write what you know from an emotional place. It's okay. I know what it feels like to be broken up with or to lose someone or to not find my keys maybe. And that frustration that comes with it, that is why you write what you know. It doesn't mean what you know literally because otherwise we would not have a sci-fi, for example. It's more about the emotional truth that you bring to the table. And if your point to Evelyn, just the idea that you have those thoughts in your mind, you are maybe excited about an idea initially. And going back to what made you excited to begin with, those themes that you want to explore, I feel like that's, like you said, like a good anchor to get yourself going into writing and executing the idea, even if maybe you're not super excited by, or you feel it's not wholly original, there's a reason why in the first place you were excited about that idea. There's something in the back of your mind, maybe you saw a show, maybe you saw a movie, maybe you read an article about something that gets you excited and hatches that seed. Is that even a word? Hatches the seed? No, that's an egg. That gets <laughs> Seeds <hatched>. don't have. <laughs> Listen, I'm a specialist yeah, of mixed yeah. metaphors. So uh, that's my specialty is I do, I do mixed metaphors on this podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Paper Team. <laughs> I think if it's an idea that you feel like if someone else had that idea, it's, it basically has to be something that you want to watch, right? It's like if someone else had that idea, you'd be like jealous of them that you want to write it yourself. Like that's the idea that you should run with. And just to jump back on the actual phrasing of the question, Oscar finishes the email by saying, I think the reason I do this is because I want it to be absolutely original and perfect since a good script is the one and only chance for me to get invited into the TV business. And again, just to reiterate what we said before, what is going to get you invited into the TV business and what makes a good script is not a good idea. 
it's a good execution of that idea. Yeah. If you think of anything in your mind that you hold a near and dear to your heart, I bet it's not really based on the idea. I mean, if I told you, okay, so I got this show. It's about a teenager called Buffy. She has a high school problems during the day and uh, during the night she hunts vampires. And uh, but f- don't don't worry about the vampire CGI. We're, we're just gonna put like really bad makeup on them, and it's gonna be great. Trust me, it's gonna be a good show. This is like a terrible concept. I don't even know what this is. There was a movie in the 90s that sucked, that bombed. I don't know if I really want to make a show out of this. And yet the execution of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is completely different from the preconceived notion that this is sort of like a teenager-y show about teenage problems. It's It does something deeper in the execution of it. Yeah, ultimately, it's like when you're starting out, you feel like every idea is going to be your last one. And you're very precious with them. But... That's something that you kind of have to get past in order to become like a professional writer. As Alex said, it really is about execution because down the line, hopefully you'll have opportunities to like pitch on IPs and you have to have like your own take on other people's ideas as well, whether they're like fairy tales or like public domain properties, things like that. So it's like being really precious with, you know, the handful of ideas that you have now doesn't behoove you in the long run. On that note, let's move on to our final question of the week from Michelle Tompkins. And she says, hi, Alex. My reason I signed up for your site is that I am going to enter all the TV earning programs this spring and want to get some tips that will help me get on the right path. I have an eclectic background, a film major from Columbia, radio DJ, talent agent, publicist, spokesperson, and media manager. But three years ago, I switched careers to get back into writing. I want to write for TV, so I'm recalculating route and figuring out what I need to get there in the next year or so. My biggest problem is that I am not sure how to get started beyond a fixing ass to seat and writing a couple pilots and spec scripts. My second biggest problem is what do I need to do to get in the right spot to get in a writer's room? Thanks, Michelle. Okay, so there's like a couple of different layers to that question. I think one was about fellowships, which I think I can talk about a little bit. I think for the fellowships in general, if you are applying for the first time or if you haven't made it to the second round, the advice that I would give is to choose a spec for a show that you're very familiar with, that you're super comfortable writing, that you feel like you know the characters and the world of the show. It's basically like the dream show that you would want to write for, I think is like the right show to choose. And I think it's also important to choose a show that's tonally similar to the pilot you would submit if you got invited into the second round. It goes back to the idea of like being definable as a writer, that you have a very specific brand as a writer so they can understand like who you are, what kind of shows you would potentially get staffed on. My advice for people who are coming back as in like they've been finalists the previous year or they've at least made the second round is to kind of like diversify your samples the second time around, because hopefully the first time around you've established that you're a good writer and they know what kind of a writer you want to be. So this isn't necessarily like choosing like a completely different thing, but like I think of it as when you're a painter and you're using like a a slightly different shade, a slightly different color that still communicates the kind of writer you want to be, but it's just like showing a different side to you. That's what I would say for fellowships. I love that advice. Now, for the other questions, I'll mention just uh, briefly, in terms of sort of getting in the right spot to get in a writer's room and what to do, in my mind, being a TV writer sort of comes down to three different parts that we all have our own level of control over. 
The first part is obviously the writing, writing specs, pilots, putting yourself in a position that you work on your craft. You have complete ownership over your level of that craft because you can write for hours and hours and hours or not. That's up to you, really. You can study scripts, you can study shows, you can study specs or whatever, and you can get to the level where, okay, I'm good. I've, I've gotten a couple of pilots under my belt. I feel like this third one is going to be really freaking amazing and people are going to love it. That's the first part. The second part is the business part. It's sort of the relationship. It's, okay, who do I meet? Who do I need to meet to get in a position where I can get staff or I can get an assistant position? What that means is meeting executives, assistants, shorners, other writers, people at your level, people above your level, people under your level, maybe all those places and sort of putting yourself out there on the business side, networking in the nice way, not networking as in, hey, what can you do for me? Or what can I do for you? But more so, hey, you're a friendly human being. I'm a friendly human being. We have all these things in common. Let's bond over these uh, common uh, jelly bellies or whatever. <laughs> and lastly, the third thing is yourself. I would say like you as a writer, as a human being, uh, we've, uh, this is another thing we covered uh, recently on the podcast, just the idea of like taking care of yourself, of your mental health, physical health, all that stuff, but also defining who you are as a person, understanding your brand, essentially, even though brand may be a bad word, just who you are as a person, ways for other people to understand who you are on a creative level. Now, Michelle, you mentioned that you uh, were a film major from Columbia, you uh, were a radio DJ, talent agent, publicist, spokesperson, media manager. You've got so many awesome experiences, and then you can distill all those experiences into sort of the content of the pilot and the writing that you're putting out there. And then when you're meeting people, you can say, hey, I've been all these different things, these are my experiences that translate to this amazing pilot. And then if you're in a position where they're going to be reading you, then they're going to be reading you with sort of like that emotional baggage of, hey, I know this person kind of like lived through these experiences. The pilot is really amazing. That would make a lot of sense to meet this person for staffing on this show about a radio DJ or whatever it is. And then you're going to be meeting those people and hopefully the sample is good enough. You are personable enough and rendable enough that they understand who you are. Conversely, you can also meet reps and agents and managers and so forth to get to that level, but there's just like one route you can go to. All right, let's get into some TV writing news. Right now, we are in the middle of award season. In fact, uh, the very day we are recording this in a couple of hours, the Golden Globes are going to happen. I don't particularly care for the Golden Globes, but <laughs> what are Me your neither. thoughts? Oh, there you go. This is a TV podcast, so I, I we should probably talk about TV more. Probably, yeah. I am as obsessed with Succession. I, I want love. Succession to win everything. <sighs> Succession is probably the best one hour of uh, last year. I would say Succession. Yeah. What are your best TV shows of 2019? Ooh, okay. Succession is on the top of my list. I also really enjoyed Watchmen. Oh, some of the earlier ones of the year, which I think kind of went under the radar a little bit, I think is like Pen15, Rami. I feel like people aren't talking about Rami as much as they should. Yeah, is it, wasn't that on uh, Hulu? Yes, both Pen15 and uh, Rami are on I feel Hulu. like Hulu is a little bit of a death sentence. I feel like except for Henry's Tale, everything else. I mean, Pen15 gets a little love. I think Rami got a, l a little like less love, but they're both, I think, groundbreaking shows, honestly. They're both half hour long comedies. I loved both. What else was on last year? The ones I quoted on our holiday special were obviously Watchmen that yeah. you mentioned, yeah. Succession. I mean, yeah. that was just fantastic. Second season and uh, Fleabag season two. Fleabag, I'm still catching up on. But Ooh, yes, love and uh, Barry season two also. I loved Barry. Yeah. Also, Veep had a very strong final season, I feel like. 
Yeah. I did mention also in terms of favorite episode, besides the Watchmen ones, I mentioned, I don't know if you saw Counterpart. I have not. Counterpart is one of the best sci-fi shows in recent years. It's, do you know the, the conceit? No. Tell it's me basically, it was a star show. It lasted two seasons. It got canceled. You can watch the two seasons and be satisfied. It's the show with J.K. Simmons. I don't know if you mm. know what I'm talking about, but basically it's a what if in, uh, I believe the late 80s in Berlin, there was an experiment that happened that duplicated the world. So there's two worlds. And then from that point on, the history of the world sort of diverged. We're now in present day in this Berlin where you've got these two parallel Earth. But the show is about J.K. Simmons, who is sort of like a, a pencil pusher, clocking in and out of this like admin building. He doesn't really know why he's doing what he's doing. He's kind of like living his midlife crisis kind of thing. Yeah. And then one day, another J.K. Simmons shows up, and he's like the badass J.K. Simmons. This is a very like, interesting premise. Turns out that's how he learns that where he's been working at is actually the border control between those two worlds. Uh -huh. So then the whole show is kind of like a Cold War era, like spy thriller. That's okay. kind of the take, except in like two alternate histories, like ours wow. and like theirs. It's like the Americans, yeah, but they're a bit more like parallel world. I don't think they do much in terms of alternate history, but more so J.K. Simmons and the Americans, except it's like in Berlin and it's there's, there's two J.K. Simmons. And That was uh, a very good pitch. I am going to check it out now. <laughs> there we go. But so my episode of last, I'm not going to spoil anything. There's two great episodes on the show, one in the first season and one in the second season that do what The Leftovers and Watchmen did a little bit, which is kind of a close-ended, character-focused piece mm -hmm. through and through, just telling like one person's story all the way through. My episode for the second season was one of my favorite episodes of last year, but it's like a long tangent because Counterpart is definitely not nominated for anything. <laughs> That's a bummer, really. Yeah, it is a bummer. Wait, it's, what else is nominated? All right, so for Golden Glow's Best TV Drama, that was the other one I was going to mention, The Crown. Oh, I love The Crown the so Crown, much. So One good. of my faves, yeah. Big Little Lies, Killing Eve. <laughs> Killing Eve was great. I love Killing the Eve. The Morning Show, not great. Succession. Succession. So there you go. In terms of TV comedies or musical, for Golden Globes, Barry, Fleabag, yeah. The Kaminsky Method, Maisel, and The Politician. The thing that nobody has seen. I have seen all of The Politician. You have seen all of The Politician? Yes. All right. So who do you want to win for best uh, TV comedy? Barry. Barry. And I'm assuming Succession for yes. best drama? Yeah. I would say like Succession and The Crown for one hour. And then half hour, I'd say Fleabag or yeah. Barry. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Fleabag is just so good. Yeah. I have to catch uh, up. But we were talking a little bit earlier about FYC scripts, and you were saying there's more on the feature side. Yeah. But the feature scripts, uh, especially for the F FYC scripts, are not necessarily the ones that are being shot. It's more, I mean, from my experience that I've read, it's a lot of transcripts almost of the movies and shows to some extent. They're not like a one-to-one -one comparison to the actual scripts that were used for production. Yeah, I found that really interesting, too. The one that I found to be pretty different from the film was Parasite, which is my favorite film of the year. So what was really interesting about Parasite, first of all, I think it's amazing that they have like an English script. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure it's like translated. But what I thought was really interesting was that the English translation in the script is pretty different from like the subtitles that we see in the film. And I'm not really sure why that is. There are also a couple of like semi-major differences can I, like, spoil one part? I mean, you can, yeah. Go okay. for it. This is the spoiler alert for people who have not seen Parasite. 
<laughs> I love that. All right. It's amazing. The final shot in Parasite where we see the main character, he's like kind of narrating his letter to his father who's like essentially like imprisoned, right? In the basement. You've seen this, right? Yes. Okay, good. In the movie, we see like his father stuck in the basement the same way that I think I think the protagonist's name is Kitek. He's also like still stuck in the sub-basement apartment. And it's like a huge contrast from like the fantasy like the dream he has of like becoming successful and rich and like freeing his imprisoned father and it's like so stunning viscerally and in the script i think it's the main character still like in the woods overseeing like all the houses and that i feel like that's like a pretty major difference i like i'm sure they made the decision maybe during production or at some point but yeah, I mean, my, my guess is that, I mean, most of the FYC scripts, at least for American movies, are, from what I understand, closer to like a sort of like a transcription-ish yeah. of the shot movie. Whereas for Parasite, my guess is they were like, okay, so since it's like a foreign script, it's a foreign movie, I, I'm sure they never expected it to get like this amount of praise yeah. to such an extent that they would be submitting an FYC script. Uh, like a shooting script. Exactly. Yeah. So they were like, let's try to translate this like production draft maybe. Yeah, and maybe. then they got a separate company to translate the script and then they sent that out yeah. to the FYC would be my guess. And probably just because... It's two different companies doing the subtitles and the script. That would explain the discrepancy and the content. Yeah. It's still an amazing read. It's my favorite of the year. Interesting. Even the script. I'll have yeah. to read the, the Korean version. <laughs> you have to read the original <laughs> Korean version. Sit down with the Korean translator <laughs> if you don't speak Korean for fluently. And exactly. And you can have them the enact the whole, the whole script. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Any other FYC scripts or scripts that you read recently that were interesting? I really liked Hustlers. Hustlers was another fave of mine. Yeah. That was in the last episode. You were like, I wanted to start the year in a hustler vibe. There's a gift of Jennifer Lopez in her like big fur coat walking with a like, constant woo and i think the other girls like through the club that's the energy i want to walk mm -hmm. into 2020 with that's how you came into this podcast studio <laughs> i did like not a wear coat? a fur coat <laughs> i wanted stated on the rock record i didn't yeah. show up Pita, come, come <laughs> put down your pitchforks <laughs> it's okay there's no fur coats no no fur coat no animals were Just... heard in the making of this podcast yes now uh lastly we did want to bring up uh, an article that was on the, the hollywood reporter about big data and antitrust laws uh, because obviously we all know that Netflix and Hulu and uh, Disney Plus and all the other OTTs are really keen to observing our very movement, our clicks of the mouses, the amount of time we're streaming the same thing over and over again. And they just have a lot of data to use on their service and maybe sell or do something with it. So anyway, a lot of the antitrust agencies and uh, entities are looking into potentially battling, you know, down the line, the big OTTs in the same way that they're already actively looking at Facebook and Google hoarding the data. I don't know if you had any thoughts on the idea that just Netflix and all those places have your data and that it's probably as valuable as uh, Google and Facebook having that data, except not many people are talking about the data that the OTTs are having on you in the same way that Facebook or Google is like such a big thing. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Like what type of data do you think Netflix and other streaming companies are, is it just like, 
the types of shows you watch. Yeah, just from my experience working on a Netflix show, I can tell you that they have a lot more data than you can think of in terms of just the consumption of the content. I mean, obviously they know the amount of time you've watched something. They know the length where you skipped, where you rewound, all that stuff. They probably already know the characters that people relate, the scenes that are most evocative, the moments people pause the most on. Especially if it's like something with like nudity on it, I bet there's like, oh, this is where like there's like boobs or whatever it is. Yeah. Like I feel like they have all that data and then they curate that data or like they hoard all that data of the different things that you watch. And then they make, I'm assuming, presumptions or assumptions on the kind of content that you would want to watch and the things that they offer on their service. But just the idea that they aggregate that sheer amount of data on their service, they just have so much content. They can sort of like leverage what you are doing on the platform for their own benefit, which I mean, I guess is kind of the point of all those services. It's sort of like customization and all that stuff. It's a little bit peculiar in my mind that nobody's really thinking about the data that Netflix has on us, even though I would say that most people listening to the podcast and most people here spend more time on Netflix than on Google or Facebook. That's probably very true. I also fall asleep to shows. (laughs) So I feel like the data that they collect isn't necessarily all that accurate, just based on me personally, <laughs> based on me personally, because if I'm like falling asleep to like Great British Bake Off, and that's like hours of it's just like playing or, you know, whatever show happens to be my bedtime show. That's not me necessarily binge watching that show. That's the show that I choose to fall asleep to. I'm just true, putting that out there for but Netflix. That's true. Okay, Netflix, <laughs> if you're listening. Those 10 hours of uh, criminal minds <laughs> yeah. are not uh, they're not indicative of yeah. what I really like. I, I would say they would probably make an educated guess that that's what happens just based on the time of day you're watching it and then the amount of time you're like looking at it yeah. before they pop into the, are you still watching? Keep watching, keep right. watching. That's probably what that button was made for. Yeah. It was are for you, people like me falling asleep. <laughs> are you still watching the Great British Bake Off? <laughs> Three in the morning. Yeah. And uh, on that note, uh, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. We promise you we're not harvesting your data. But <laughs> if you enjoy this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get access to our Paper Patreon podcast, Cheat Sheets. And there's also a dedicated Paper Tea slot. Because remember, Paper Teas is back next month. So just for our Patreon supporters, if you submit your teasers of eight pages or less at paperteam.co slash teaser, and you are a Patreon supporter, there's a pretty good chance you will be getting feedback on air in our next PPT session. But to get on Patreon, that is at paperteam.co slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-U-N. And on that note, thank you as always for listening to this episode. And uh, thank you, Evelyn, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Uh, you're getting all the show notes for this episode, including the articles that we talked about at paperteam.co slash 167. As always, I'm on Twitter at TVCalling. And I'm at Evelyn Eves. Excellent. And if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, Nick will be back as we will be tackling a jam-packed episode all about knowing your worth as an assistant. In the wake of hashtag payuphollywood, we will be taking a deep dive at what you should be expecting and asking for as an assistant in a writer's room or industry desk, as uh, well as uh, many tips on negotiating your rate and bonuses. So we will see you next week.